From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. As we turn the corner into the second half of summer, you might be wondering to yourself, when do I get a chance to rest and recharge? It's been nothing but go, go, go. Well, if that sounds like your summer days, then today's episode is a treat. Spiritual director and award-winning author Vanita Hampton Wright returns to the pod to talk about her newest book from Ave Maria Press, Set the World on Fire, a four-week personal retreat with the female doctors of the church. These four women are your guides into a new understanding of who you are and who God is to you. Vanita's book is a retreat, one you can make on your own or in community. And don't let the mention of four weeks concern you. There's no set timeline. You can pray with these four women as the Spirit inspires. Today's conversation is a great introduction not only to Vanita's book, but to the experience of God at work in our world, both in the past and present, that these four doctors of the church challenge us to be alert to. Take time to savor Vanita's insights. Let the Spirit speak to you through them. And if you're interested in learning more about her book or her other work, check out the links in the show notes. And now, here is Vanita. Vanita Hampton-Wright, welcome back to AMDG. We're glad you're with us today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and you have a new book out called Set the World on Fire, a four-week personal retreat with the female doctors of the church. So my first question is, why this book? Why did you write this book? And, and who are you hoping uh, gets their hands on this book? Well, uh, to be very honest with you, this book was not my idea. Um, Ave Maria Press came to me and said, we'd like you to write a book on the four female doctors of the church. And I said, well, that sounds wonderful, but I'm not an expert on these women. You know, I mean, scholars spend a lifetime just on one of them. And they said, well, no, no, no. We want you to put on your spiritual director's hat and write a book that is actually a retreat. And I said, okay, that I can do because I've got a lot of experience doing retreats. Uh, and I really enjoy my work as a spiritual director. So that's really what got it started. And once I got into it, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed working on it. And was I'm very pleased with how, how it turned out. Well, that, that leads me to my next question then. How um, as a, as a writer, I mean, you've written a lot of books, you've, you've edited a ton of books, right? You, mm -hmm. you know, this process inside and out. How is it different to write a book with a spiritual director's hat on, as you say, as opposed to someone who is kind of going into research, all of these, uh, mm -hmm. these, these four different women, how was that process different? And, and kind of what did you take from it? Well, uh, the main point of a retreat book is you want to engage the reader in more than just reading. So, yeah, I give them information. I give them brief information, biographical information on each of these women. But I draw themes out of the lives of, of each of them. And then, um, and then I create experiences that the reader can then do on his or her own. And so it becomes more of a... I'm really giving them various um, various ways to engage in prayer and reflection on their own. Um, and it starts with what's in the book, but I you know, I create a lot of different questions. I create questions for reflection. Um, you know, they do some Lexio Divina, they do some imaginative prayer. Uh, we do certain things physically, you know, during learning different physical postures for prayer. Um, and so it's not meant to so much to give them a full um, book of information on these people. It's more to allow the work and the life of each of these women to inspire the reader to kind of you know, engage with that theme, whatever theme uh, is on the page and, and learn to really pray with that and personalize it. And, and so, you know, when you're, I mean, in order to work on this book, of course, I had to read the other kind of book, you know, which what other people have written, uh, scholars who have studied these women 
for years, for decades, and they can tell you so much about the person, what happened at different stages of life, um, what, you know, conclusions they draw about this person's uh, approach to spirituality, uh, what history has claimed uh, is the impact of each of these people on the faith and, and on the world. So, you know, it's two different kinds of reading. Um, and there's a place for both, certainly. But uh, what I really like about doing a retreat book is that I feel like, you know, I'm helping the, the person on the other end of this. I'm helping this person kind of claim this for herself and work with it and allow it to just do whatever it's going to do in her life. So it ends up being a very open-ended kind of reading rather than sort of a a closed reading, which when you're, when you're reading for information, you know, there's an end to it and there are limits on it. But when you do a retreat book where you're helping people engage with the material in a personal way, then it's a very open-ended kind of reading. I just trust that the Holy Spirit is going to take any and all of this and do who knows what, you know, in the person who's working with it. Yeah, no, I, I, I you said so many things that I want to um, kind of threads on a pull on but i think one of the most important things right is this difference between you know historical reading or writing and spiritual mm -hmm. reading or writing and um you know I, I, almost this idea that you are um introducing uh a, you know somebody to a friend right the friend yeah. being the saint and and mm -hmm. kind of allowing a conversation to unfold as opposed to you know maybe doing a job interview right where you would yeah. hand someone their 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 cv or their resume first and say know everything about this person before mm -hmm. you meet them mm -hmm. and i like that it just you know it speaks to you know accompaniment it speaks to again like you said allowing the spirit to do what the spirit's going to do um and and sparks interest and again i think it just gets the difference between spiritual writing and um and different kinds of writing yeah yeah but before we get too, too, we'll talk about each of the women uh, mm -hmm. in a little bit. But before we get too far down, I wonder if you could just um, briefly s tell us who these who these women are and, and what makes uh, a doctor of the church for folks that might not be as familiar with that language. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with that. Um, a doctor of the church is, first of all, someone who's been canonized and made a saint by the church. In other words, the church as a whole recognizes this person had a significantly holy and impactful life. Um, and, and so they, they merit being remembered, being honored, uh, being listened to or read. Uh, many of them we know through their writings. Um, a doctor of the church is a, is a step further in that whatever this person has added to our understanding of God and to the faith is timeless. You know, it's not just for that person's time. It's something that is so fundamental and so uh, far-reaching that the, the, you know, the uh, people in charge of making the saints, you know, the, the people in the church hierarchy, they recognize that this person has added even more, especially to our understanding of God and the faith. And for that reason, we're going to declare them also a doctor of the church, which means that their writings get distributed and read much more than just someone who is a saint. Uh, most doctors of the church, of course, are men, uh, and many of those men are what we would consider academics or scholastics of their day. You know, they, they wrote lots of material, they did a lot of theology, uh, and so having four women across history become doctors of the church is by itself um, rather interesting in that none of these women was educated nearly to the extent uh, of any of the male doctors of the church because women just they couldn't be in those kind of positions uh, they they throughout most of history and the historical periods these women lived in you got married and you had babies or you joined a nunnery or you know there was there weren't a lot of options it wasn't like well, i'm going to go to college that just that wasn't there although some women in the upper classes they were more educated they were literate, um, but at least one of these women, uh, Catherine of Siena, was, wasn't even very literate, which is really incredible, given, given the, the impact she had on others. 
Um, so, and, and the book takes these in the opposite order of chronology. And that has to do with what I thought each woman uh, brought to this book. So I start with, um, I start with Therese of Lisieux who uh, lived from 1873 to 1897. So she's the most recent. And uh, she was a young woman, came from a very devout family, always was in love with God from a very early age and joined a convent at age 15, which was usually not allowed and uh, died early. She died at age 23 of tuberculosis. Um, but in that time, what she discovered about prayer and God and God's love uh, was just revolutionary. So that was her mark on history. Uh, next in uh, 1515 to 1582 is Teresa of Avila. Uh, both of these, uh, both Therese and Teresa were Carmelites. They joined the Carmelite order. Uh, Therese was in France, Teresa in Spain. And um, she also joined the Carmelite order, but she kind of turned things upside down because once ter uh, Teresa, and she wasn't the kind of person who early on thought she wanted to be a religious. She was kind of not a social butterfly, but she enjoyed an active social life. And it was kind of surprising that she ended up joining a convent. But once she did, she struggled a lot, but then she began to encounter God. She had mystical experiences. Uh, and she said, you know what? We are really not running a very tight ship here at this convent. We're visiting way too much. We're having family and friends come in the parlor and just, you know, whiling away the hours. We're not praying the way we should. And so she, along with a friend of hers who became St. John of the Cross, they basically reformed the Carmelite order for both men and women. Um, so that, and the Carmelites yeah. weren't too happy about that at the time. No, they recall, weren't. Right? No, they weren't. She, yeah, she dealt with a lot of resistance. Uh, and um, well, her story is just all of these stories are incredible, but all of them had resistance that they needed to deal with. Uh, Catherine of Siena, thirteen forty-seven to thirteen eighty. She was she was a third order Dominican, which means that technically she was actually a layperson. Uh, but she did take the habit of the Dominican order and she um, made her parents very angry because she refused to get married, which was what they had planned for her. Uh, and she started hanging out with the, with this group of women in the town that did works of mercy. They would like help the poor, uh, go to the hospitals and help people. And so Catherine got involved in this. And her presence just became so powerful that over time, people were coming to her uh, for help, for wisdom. Catherine of Siena ended up being, um, she is one of the patron saints of Europe because she became a peacemaker. She would talk to people in politics. She would talk to popes. She was, she was willing to tell the truth to anybody. Uh, truth was her big thing, you know, once she knew the truth. She couldn't uh, deviate from that. And she was really a, a prophetic voice in her time. And then Hildegard of Bingen, who I don't know if there's a favorite among these for me, but I really love Hildegard. Um, 1099 to 1179. Um, Hildegard was the 10th child in her family and her parents gave her as a tithe to the church. So as wow. a small child, Hildegard lived with Yuta, um, an anchoress in her little cell attached to one of the, to the church there in Bingen. And so, you know, she had a very early start in religious life, but then of course her own life developed and after Yuta died and then, and uh, Hildegard became anchoress or abbess and and she ended up st uh, starting more communities but the thing we love about hildegard is that her creativity just knew no bounds she she wrote what we would call scientific texts she became a, a master of herbology um and medicine of that day she uh she wrote music she did uh artwork 
she wrote all kinds of plays. I mean, she whatever there was in front of her, she just did it. And um, and she also was a, a person who really understood sort of the physical elements of belief and being an embodied, you know, uh, having her faith really embodied. So uh, very gutsy and, oh, I don't know, just unstoppable. And the older she got, the busier she got. She lived to 81, which back then was a miracle. Yeah, and in the 1100s, her, well. <laughs> yeah, and, and in her latter years, she was doing one preaching tour after another. She got permission from the Pope to just, she could preach, which wow. back then women didn't preach. But what she had written, and she so impressed uh, the hierarchy that they say, go for it. And so she was doing preaching tours till the end of her life. And so all of the and all of these women wrote um, some more than others, but we are fortunate to have their experience of faith captured in the books that they wrote. I know you do uh, a lot of writing and thinking and retreat giving at the intersection of creativity and spirituality. Mm -hmm. Have you used, it sounds like Hildegard would be um, like right down that alley there, but have you used the writings or the work or the kind of just the legacy of these women um, in, in previous retreats in that way before, or it was this, were you coming to these, these women, you know, more or less fresh? I, well, I had written a, a prayer book, uh, praying with St. Therese and then praying with St. Teresa. I did uh, prayer books where it's like morning and evening prayer for uh, a week. I did that those for Paraclete Press several years ago. So I had, I had already, uh, you know, designed prayer books based on two of these women. The retreat work, however, um, I did not know that much about Catherine and about Hildegard. So now I just have all this material that I didn't really have before to, you know, to help people engage with uh, just the concepts that they came up with. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, to that point, I wonder, as you're talking with, with you know, either kind of individual directees or, or a larger retreat setting um, about these saints, right, about these women, whether kind of using your book or just, mm -hmm. you know, or mm -hmm. however, I feel like there's always that temptation to compare ourselves to these saints, right? Oh my gosh, like, you know, Catherine was doing all these great things and Hildegard is traveling and preaching. You know, what am I doing? How mm -hmm. do you, as a director, um, help people kind of work through that temptation to comparison or um, or just those those questions? What's your what's your take on that? Well, you know, if if we present these women as the human beings they were, that doesn't become such a problem because mm. they each struggled. Uh, Therese and Teresa, they had so much trouble doing prayer, you know, in the convent because they, you know, they had their set times of prayer and their set ways of praying. And they both just, they, they just couldn't do it. They, you know, uh, Therese would fall asleep. Uh, Teresa, I mean, she stopped praying for long periods of time in the beginning because she was so frustrated with how prayer went. And both of them on their own kind of discovered this deeper contemplative prayer that did not rely so much on the typical kinds of liturgies that their convents used. So they struggled. Um, and, and Teresa of Avila, you know, she was having uh, mystical experiences early on and no one understood her. At one point, people in the church thought that this was all demonic um, she couldn't find a, a confessor that she trusted to tell the truth to about her experiences for, you know, something like 20 years. Oh, wow. I mean, this is a woman who clung to what she knew to be. She, she knew I, this is my experience. I know this is my experience with God. And so she just clung to it, but she had to be quiet about it, you know, for a long, long time. Um, you know, uh, Catherine... The, the whole thing about her parents trying to force her to get married. And then, uh, you know, she spent her life really working with people at their worst points of need. And, and it was a hard life, you know, it, it was a, it was a hard way to go through life being so closely connected to people on the margins. Um, Hildegard, I'm not sure, um, 
I think Hildegard to me is almost the most intimidating because she just, nothing stopped her. But then I look at, you know, I look at the four of these women and what I try to get across to people in retreat is the thing about each of them is, is, you know, they were fearless. They were absolutely fearless. And I try to use those examples to encourage us to, you know, Therese had a very insulated kind of life and she wrote a certain kinds of things about spirituality that really struck a chord with millions and millions of people. But she wrote out of that little life that she had and it was fairly short and uh, very insulated. But she, she leaned into who she was and the same with Teresa of Avila. Catherine of Siena, Hildegard of Bingen, what each of these women did is they leaned in to who they actually were and to their true experiences with God. They just decided, this is me, this is my life, this is what I have to work with, uh, and you know, this is my family background, the, these are my gifts. And in retreat, that's what I try to do is help people connect to these women by saying, okay, so what's your background? You know, I, I like to say we all enter life with bags we didn't pack ourselves. Right. Yeah. You know? not, yeah. And that's the same for, for these women. And so I try to use that hu- that very human aspect of their lives to help people look at themselves and say, well, these are the limitations that have been on my life, but each of these women had severe limitations, especially given when they were alive. I mean, as women, they had hardly any any rights at all. Um, and so we learned to accept, okay, this is my experience of God. This is how I can pray. So I'm gonna pray the way I can, not the way I can't. Um, and these are my gifts. This is what helps me get up in the morning. These are my desires. And so I'm just going to lean into this. I'm going to be who I am and no one's going to take that from me. And I'm going to be fierce about it. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I really wish that the church today would learn a little more about this kind of spiritual fierceness and fearlessness and that we see, okay, this is what there is to do. I'm going to do it. I don't care what people say about me on social media. I don't care if I don't get any followers when I do this. Um, and I don't even care if certain people of the church think that I'm wrong about this. I know what God has shown me and I'm going to be brave enough to follow through with it. I just think we need more of that. Yeah, I like that. Spiritual fierceness. I like I like that a lot. And I think you're absolutely right. These four women are, are good examples of that. I, I'm always struck by Teresa of Lisieux and how she's the patroness of, of missionaries when she, as you said, she lived this quiet, you know, I think you said small life, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, uh, but again, just, I think it, it points to the interconnectedness of, of everything, of, uh, you know, of our, of our spiritual selves with, with all of creation. And yeah. Catherine of Siena reminded me, didn't she like call the popes to task? Wasn't that when there were oh, two yeah. popes and, yeah. and she was yeah. like, she giving them said, the you need to, you need to get back to Rome, you know, get out. Of, yeah. I mean, she just, you couldn't stop her. She would just, uh, you know, tell the truth. And it's like people recognize it. You know, I think when we, when we have that kind of spiritual integrity, people recognize it. You know, the people who are ready for the truth will, will recognize that ring of truth and what we say and who we are. Uh, but if we kind of waver back and forth because we're not, you know, we're afraid of this or we don't want to upset people over here, um, I think it's harder for people to just look at us and say, you know, you're right. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to try to follow what you're saying. And the thing, uh, you know, another thing about Therese, Therese was willing to be that young person and she embraced it and realized, you know, I'm never going to be one of these spiritual giants. I'm never going to be, you know, big. Um, because of who I am, but I will still tell God what I want. And so she would, in one prayer, she says, you know, Lord, I want, I want to be a missionary. I want to be a priest. She just had the desire to do all of these different kinds of ministries. And 
we probably would do well to to pray that way more often just saying lord i know this is a long shot actually this is impossible but this is what i want this is what i want uh this this is what i'm drawn to and so you know therese was willing to do that and even though she was not able to be a missionary primarily i think because of her health and just she died so young she was a spiritual director to two priests who were missionaries so she's still you know, had an impact on the mission world. Yeah. I want to pick up on two um, uh, terms you've used, spiritual integrity and then spiritual fierceness we've been talking about. And um, I, I, I think they're such like worthwhile goals, but they probably feel pretty lofty. At least to me, they, they sound lofty. Um, and, and so, you know, you're, you're inviting people on this self-guided retreat, right? So it's a retreat in everyday life, um, which I think can feel a little overwhelming uh, to, to, to people, uh, especially when like, you know, these are the, the goals, spiritual integrity, spiritual fierceness. And, and as you've been articulating so so wonderfully, this, this how are we kind of um, understanding and, and then giving our desires to God, which is very Ignatian. Um, so how do you how do you help people to prepare uh, to to go through this retreat experience and to really have the the confidence, um, you know, in themselves and certainly in God uh, that that whatever they can give to the retreat is is enough? Okay, that's a really good question. Uh, I think the first thing is that with any book like this, you know, you give people permission to you know use it the way it helps you. Um, in fact, there are a number of small groups here in Northwest Arkansas, where I live, who are using this book all at the same time, but they are taking a month for each week of the book. So, uh, because that just gives them more time because there's, you know, I give people a lot of things to do, uh, but also, <laughs> also on retreat, I'll say, you know, one exercise may really work for you, but another exercise may just fall flat. Don't worry about it. You know, just pay attention to what is, to what resonates with you. Pay attention to what you're drawn to. Pay attention to what you feel like you want to run away from, because that's just as important, you know, to notice the negative uh, reactions as well as the positive. And, and trust that the Holy Spirit is taking you at the pace that you're able to go to the places you need to go to. And you have to have that freedom to just say, wherever this goes is gonna be fine. Uh, you know, we, we're real perfectionists in, in this culture, uh, the United States. We're very obsessed with being productive. We're obsessed with numbers of things, you know, how much, um, how many, uh, we try to quantify everything, and um, and we also are in love with this idea of you know the the kid who becomes a millionaire by the age of thirty, uh, you know the actress who wins an Oscar when she's eighteen. I mean, we really um, we obsess over. That's why I can't watch the Olympics because everyone is is half my age. If, oh, if I, know. That. <laughs> I know, I uh, know. But, you know, we obsess over the ideas of achievement and and what the world calls success. And I think sometimes when people go on retreat, a good bit of the time, they're just learning to sort of unlearn a way of looking at themselves. Um, you know, I could look at myself a certain way and say, well, you know, I'm a failure. Actually, I can look back over my life and I could tell you the story of my life just in terms of failures, mm. you know, um, but I'm unlearning that, that tendency to say, well, I didn't become this and I didn't achieve that and I didn't do this. Um, and so on retreat, what you hope to, first of all, whether I'm a spiritual director sitting with an individual or I'm someone leading retreat my primary goal is to create a safe place in which people can just be honest with themselves. They can be honest with God. And, you know, that's what spiritual integrity is. And that's what each of these women came to at some point. They didn't all start out there. They certainly didn't. And I am sure that if you were to talk to any of them in their, you know, at the end of life, including Therese, who had a short life, 
they would look back on their earlier years and say, oh, boy, I wish I'd known then what I figured out, you know, 10 years later. So understanding that these people didn't become saints because they were just like instantly, you know, successful at spirituality. They weren't. They just stuck with it. And and they would not let go of the truth that they were given. And and they learned to own their own personal experience of the divine and mm. not allow anyone to interfere with that. So, you know, spiritual integrity has a lot to do with being truthful with yourself, being truthful with other people, being truthful with God. You know, you look at the Psalms, talk about truthful with God. You know, uh, some of these Psalms, you almost, you're almost afraid to say them out loud because you're thinking, am I going to get in trouble for talking to God like this? But, you know, put in contemporary language, it's like, so how long are you going to sit on your hands and not do anything about the situation, God? Or <laughs> do, do you have you forgotten I'm here? Uh, you know, I mean, there's some real sarcasm in some of these Psalms. There's anger. And, and yet we know that at the heart of them is this longing for God. And that's the reason, I mean, if I don't care about you, I really can't get very angry with you because, you know, you don't have any power over me because I don't care about you. But if I desire to be with you, if you're really important to me, then of course I'm going to, everything that you do or don't do, I'm going to have some sort of reaction to. So I think sometimes that people who express a lot of frustration with God, a lot of anger, sometimes I feel like they are closer or they're, they're better engaged with their prayer life than the person who, you know, they, they won't complain. They just, they try to just adjust to whatever's happening and just always be happy. Uh, at some point you just have to tear all of that away and say, okay, this is what I'm going through God and you need to do something because I can't keep doing this. I can't keep feeling this way. I can't, um, I can't have this kind of frustration in my life. I need to hear from you, and sooner is better than later. Uh, you know, that is the kind of prayer that these women prayed. And they may have used language that I don't use, but they were very honest in their desire for God. Yeah, that's that's really, I think, powerful to think about. Uh, you know, we are uh, more engaged sometimes when we're angry because of that. Um, desire for relationship, recognition yeah. of relationship, and I, I think that's a really helpful thing to think about. Um, let's let's go through these 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 four women um, briefly, and maybe mm -hmm. uh, you can offer for each one kind of a spiritual nugget that you think their life and legacy um, can give to uh, people today, people that might want to go on this, this, this self-guided retreat. Um, mm -hmm. What's the kind of the, this, this one little uh, entryway into their stories that you would offer to, to folks that are, that are thinking about uh, these women? Okay. Well, Therese, as, as I said, she died young. Um, she had a hard time with prayer. She was drawn to mental prayer. Uh, she once said, recitation of the rosary is more difficult for me than the wearing of an instrument of penance. You know, that's, that's being honest about prayer. Yeah. Um, she, but she loved the Gospels. And um, the, what, what we gained from her, we call her the little flower because she said, you know, I'm not going to be that huge, beautiful rose. I'm just a little flower, but God loves me as that little flower. And so what we gain from her is what I am is enough. I am totally enough to God. I don't have to be anybody else. And whatever I'm given, this is part of my life, and it's just fine. Uh, that is a hard lesson. And I think most of us, most people of faith, we spend our entire lives just getting that right. You know, accepting that, you know, what I am today is enough because God knows me intimately. God loves me limitlessly. And so I don't have to be anybody else. I think that's, I mean, there are a lot of things uh, in Teresa's writings, but I think that is the thing that um, we all can really gain from. Uh, Teresa of Avila. Okay, she also found prayer difficult. She also had a lot of illness. Um, 
and she became a mystic in that she would experience ecstasies and unitive experiences with God. Um, she didn't ask for this. I, I don't think she really enjoyed enjoyed it that much because it drew a lot of attention to her. She really didn't want. But she recognized with great humility that God, uh, God is the divine mystery. And yet she was convinced of the divine dwelling within people. You know, Teresa is the one who wrote The Interior Castle about our interior life and prayer and life with God. And, and the, the thing that I really take from her is this God is more expansive than I could ever, ever imagine or get my head around. God is the divine mystery over all things. And this God lives within me. And she really believed that this God actually dwells within me. So she could, she could see God as expansive beyond everything and yet personal enough to be within her and to live in her life and to, and to help her do whatever she needed to do. So, you know, and, and another thing I take from Teresa is she really, I think, can teach us how to own our, our spirituality as individuals. She had to own the, the form her spirituality took. She didn't ask to be a mystic. She didn't ask for people in the church to think wrongly of her, to think she was demon-possessed. Uh, she didn't ask to not be able to talk about her spirituality truthfully for years on end. Um, she didn't ask for any of that, but it's the, the spirituality that she had. It was her experience and she received it as, okay, this is mine. This is mine. So what am I going to do with it? Uh, so owning your individual spirituality is, is one thing I take from her, but the other really is this idea that God dwells in me, you know, God, God of the universe lives within me. And that's another thing that's hard for us to grasp, but it's true. So that's Teresa. With Catherine, you know, her passion for the truth compelled her. But the other thing that compelled her was that she was totally convinced of God's love. And so between those two things, those really, they, they compelled her through life. So she couldn't not tell the truth, which meant she ended up talking to all kinds of people uh, from just some simple lay person up to kings and popes because she desired the truth, she respected the truth, she recognized it, and she would not let go of that. But if you, if you have the truth, but you don't have the sense that, that you are held in the compassionate love of God, I don't know that the truth does you much good. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if, if I don't believe that I am loved by God, that I am held in God's love, then truth and falsehood don't even matter. You know, what do you do with it? So I don't think you can, you know, you can't have that passion for truth without also understanding, yeah, I'm safe enough to know the truth. I'm safe enough to see the world as it truly is because I'm held in God's love. So that's what I see in her life. Uh, she, she, was, she had a lot of power. She was just a powerful presence. And it was because of, I think, primarily those two things. So am I going to respond to the truth? Am I going to be truthful, as truthful as I can be in all situations? But am I going to also remind myself every moment of every day, I am held eternally in God's love? and nothing can get in the way of that. So that is Catherine. I feel like I'm really cheating these people because there's so much more, you know. Um, I, I have started reading through the dialogues of St. Saint, of Saint Catherine, which are like her conversations with God. And I tell you, there's so much stuff in there. Um, I, I could spend years, you know, I'll take a little bit at a time, then I just have to stop it. Okay, I have to digest this. Oh my gosh, what did she just say? Right, uh, yeah. Well, she was one who said that God makes a person another himself, which I thought was fascinating. She understood that we're extensions of the divine and that God makes each of us another God self. 
Now, she was saying this in, you know, in like 13 something. And how often do we realize that, you know, the incarnation is us. It's not just Jesus. We are participants in the incarnation. And she got that. So, yeah, yeah there's a I... lot There's a lot in the dialogues. But, you know, uh, put on your seatbelt and make lots of coffee if you're going to read the dialogues. Because there's just, <laughs> it's so much there. And it's, it's really rich. It's so funny. I went to my, my elementary school in Philadelphia. It no longer exists, um, but it was uh, St. Catherine of Siena. And so I have, I, it's a name that is constantly, like just like in my life story, I'm very familiar with it, but I know, I knew very little about the saint. And so the more I learn, I'm like, wow, like what a, what a name for my like, you know, kindergarten oh, yeah. through eighth grade upbringing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and the thing is, you know, a lot of us will hear little snippets from these people, just right. like we hear snippets from any of the saints. But then when you when you read it in context, you think, wow, you know, this person was understanding a theological concept that we still haven't grasped. And um, it's, it's just amazing. So it goes anyway. to that timelessness you were talking about. Yeah. Like the, they're yeah. doctors because what their insight is, is constantly something for us to be yeah. delving more deeply into, right? And and, mm-hmm. and bringing into dialogue with our own experiences, which is the point of your book, and dialogue in just into the present moment. Um, and so it's, yeah, I mean, you're, even if these are brief descriptions, you're getting me excited to, to, to read more, but let's well, not, let's, we got to get, let's, what's, what do you got to say about Hildegard? Let's, let's bring oh, it home. <laughs> what's not to say about Hildegard? She, uh, she did a lot of writing, uh, on many things. Uh, she did three volumes of visionary theology, mm-hmm. one called Know the Ways, the other Book of Life's Merits, and the other Book of Divine Works. Uh, so you've got a lot of that she wrote music she considered music to reflect the songs of the angels and she also spoke in terms of the universe having its own music uh which actually we know now uh, you know i think that there is actually you know there's different kinds of vibrations and humming you know out in space and we know that uh, she did scientific and medical writings sermons many writings on the scriptures all of these women we're very attached to the scriptures, especially the gospels. So that's important to remember. Um, she actually created a language that was German, a combination of German and Latin for liturgies in her convent. I mean, who creates their own language for prayer? <laughs> I mean, all um, I can think of is, uh, is uh, J.R. Tolkien's language. Yeah, and, then, yeah. and then Klingon. Those would be the two I can yeah, remind immediately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway... You know, I think what I would gain for there's so much to, to get from Hildegard, but you know, the idea of we are part of this vast universe and there's always something more to know about it. And and we are to be participants in just this divine dance and and in the divine music. And the fact that we are embodied is a wonderful thing, you know. the The body, science, the, the physical world—it's all—it's all just really um, filled with with the divine. And you know, she had a, a close sense of creation and our interactions with creation uh, long, long before there was an environmental movement. You know, she really—in fact, she's been co-opted a lot by different groups. Uh, environmentalists have used some of her material and all of that. But for her, it was always directed, it was always connected very specifically to her faith in the divine love and God of the universe. So mm-hmm. I think with Hildegard, she leaves us with this sense of you, we can be open to, we can be open to every facet of our being. We can be open to science, we can be open to the arts, we can be open to religious experience, we can be open to just what we experience in our own body on a given day. We can be open to the beauties of language. Um, She wrote, in in fact, an excerpt of this is in the book, um, Set the World on Fire. She has, it's a morality play, but it's a play that the different characters are different parts of the person. It's like an interior 
play. It's it's just fascinating. And when you realize what she's doing, you're thinking, she's also a psychologist. My gosh, what does she not do? You know? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's so timely to today as well, because I, I just know, um, you know, so many kind of new, uh, you, know, psych, you know, therapy approaches and things look at the different parts of the person and bring them yeah. into dialogue almost. So it's, I mean, yeah. your your description of Hildegard is, seems so so timely and as you as you said that's that's she's the you know the oldest as far as the timeline yeah, goes and yeah. yet we're talking about you know god of the universe the universe is is, is still you know expanding and being and creating yeah, and yeah yeah what wow what beautiful insights um um well just i mean just uh, just last question i mean you've, you've given mm-hmm. me so much to, to think about hopefully the listeners too um you know, uh, obviously, none of these women were Jesuits, but but we are a Jesuit podcast, and I, mm-hmm. I have an inkling that your title, "Set the World on Fire," maybe has a little Ignatian inspiration in it. But I just wonder. Um, I know I know you are are well versed in Ignatian spirituality. Mm-hmm. So, um, are there any kind of nuggets of of the Ignatian tradition um, that you have in this book, um, uh, or anything that you think listeners should should take away? Even though, again, these aren't you know mm-hmm. Jesuit saints or, or or women in the Ignatian tradition. Yeah. At least I don't think. No, no. Um, well, actually, set the world on fire. I believe it's from a quote of Catherine of Siena. So she said it. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Ignatius yeah. stole it from her, right? <laughs> yeah. Or may, I, I'm guessing the Holy Spirit just revealed it to both of them, you know. Right. right. Um, that, the Holy Spirit that, was re- reusing content, I guess. That's right. That's right. Well, right. You I know, forgot it's, that. it's not uncommon for people in completely different co- contexts and places to be coming up with the same ideas around the same time. I think there is this sort of groundswell of uh, holy inspiration that's that's often going on in the world. Um, well, retreat work, just by nature of what it is, I think is, is naturally Ignatian in that, um, and you know, Ignatius didn't invent anything. He just kind of gave a language, he, he sort of codified uh, some of the spiritual understanding that had been around for a while. So, uh, you know, in this book, you'll, you'll get glimpses of, you know, just reflecting on your experience. That's very Ignatian. Um, speaking very honestly and personally to God or to Jesus or to one of the saints or to Mary, you know, that's also very Ignatian. Discernment, oh my gosh, uh, especially Teresa of Avila, um, she just a lot of her work really has to do with i would call it discernment and i think each of these four women did a great deal of discernment in their lives and that's also uh, very high on the ignatian scale of topics um just about anything i think that you would cover and say the spiritual exercises of saint ignatius it had popped up in some way in the lives of most of these of, of most saints um but especially the these women i think they had learned to be very self-aware and that's a lot of what the exercises are about is figuring out okay what's actually going on in me you know i need to pay attention to how i'm responding to this uh you'll find all you'll, you'll find that in all four of these women uh, uh you know the whole idea of gratitude humility consciousness of sin um that's present in all of these women but also the overwhelming reality of god's love and grace that's i think what really made these women the people they became is they believed that god loved them and of course what ignatius is trying to do in the exercises is to help the retreatant really embrace this reality that I am already loved. God has things for me to do. I can actually collaborate with God in what God is doing in the world. And that's very much part of of what's going on in these women's lives. So even though, you know, none of them would have used the kind of language that maybe we use in Ignatian circles, it's still the same spiritual dynamics. You know, it's always been around. it just wasn't talked about in certain ways and it wasn't really uh, put into any kind of a system, not much of one until Ignatius. Although imaginative prayer was around before he was using it. He had picked it up from, and I, I forget, there were a couple of writers that he had picked that up from. Um, 
So it's, you know, it's Ignatian simply because it is true to spiritual development, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a really helpful point, I think, for all of us to think about is, um, and, and really, I think something to, to meditate on, because the, again, you know, we, we point to so many touchstones of Ignatian spirituality is so important. And yet, as, as you've said, like, it's it's the same God at work in the same mm-hmm. ways, you know, mm-hmm. through time and space, you know, the spirit is, is whispering the same words. And, um, you know, and so it's this, it, but it, but it's brought into, into these very unique contexts. Um, and so, yeah, scouring the lives of all the saints for these things that are both so familiar to us and yet also mm-hmm. so um, novel and exciting uh, is a really uh, worthwhile enterprise. Well, Vanita, th- thank you so much for, for coming on today to talk about uh, your new book. And where can folks get it and set the world on fire? Where can, uh, where can folks rush to? Well, they can go to Ave Maria Press and get it, but you can also get it on Amazon. Anywhere books are sold, you can awesome. you can find it, and um, and it's doing quite well, and it's being used a lot in small groups. I would highly recommend this to say a small group that is uh, looking for another book to work through because uh, it's it just really lends itself to that. But it's also perfect for a person just wanting to do it on their own. Yeah. I will include a link in the in the notes here, and you know, four weeks Advent's coming up. There's four weeks in Advent. That could yeah. be a, a, re, a, a an opportunity for for parish yeah. communities. Um, so, um, awesome. Well, always a pleasure, Vanina. Thank oh, you so well, much. Thank you. This we'll is, do this it again for your great. next book. It's always great to talk with you, Eric. So, thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, Kristen Smith, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get our weekly email reflection series. Now discern this by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.